Let's open our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Our text will be in verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 9. The title, The Healing of a Demon-Possessed Son. Mark chapter 9. It's also found in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, all three synoptic gospels. And we'll uh, glean from some of the other things that the other gospel writers uh, put, but uh, Mark chapter 9 is, is our text for today. In this miracle, we'll see not only that Jesus came to the aid of this father who was beseeching him on behalf of his son to be rescued, we'll not only see the aid to the father, but also the aid to the son who was healed from demon possession, We also see him coming to the aid of his own disciples. And as we look at this, we we can be certain that he will come to our aid as well. And so whatever you're facing right now, I trust that this passage will be an encouragement to you that God will come as you ask him and you can trust him to change things in a miraculous way. The underlying lesson from the text is that we can rely on the power of God through prayer. First of all, uh, Jesus came to help his disciples when they were surrounded by critics, verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 starts, and when he came to his disciples, and as I, as I read that, I thought, well, where is he coming from? And it's always good to get the context. What had just taken place? We look, look back at verse 2, and we see the transfiguration. Peter had taken Peter, James, and John with him up into a high mountain. He was transfigured before him. We get our word uh, metamorphosis from the Greek word here for transfigured. His appearance was changed in front of them. His clothes were shining like new fallen snow in the brilliant sunlight. His robes were whiter than any cloth dyer could change on earth, make it any brighter through bleaching. They saw Jesus talking with Elijah, with Moses. And they heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And they came down from that mountain. And as they were coming down, Jesus told them, you can't tell anybody what you've seen here until after I've been risen from the dead. And that was a mountaintop experience that they would never forget. But as they came down, they met the rest of the disciples, the other nine and a huge crowd was surrounding them, and the, the scribes, the elite religious leaders of the day, were questioning them. The disciples weren't able to answer them. Let's read verses 14 through 16. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they had beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? A large multitude, a crowd surrounding these nine who hadn't seen the transfiguration, the other three, weren't able to tell them what they had seen. But Christ is God, whether he is seen in his brilliant majesty and glory or whether he appears along the normal course of life, he's still God. The ones questioning here were the scribes, the teachers of the Old Testament law. They spent their days arguing about what the law said, what it meant, how it applied, both the written law and the oral traditions that surrounded that law. 
The word for questioning in verse 14 means to reason, to argue, to dispute. It's used in Acts 6-9 when a group from, from the synagogue were disputing with Stephen. And they couldn't resist his wisdom and the spirit of his words. And that's what they're doing with the disciples. They're disputing, they're debating with them. And the entire crowd turned and they saw Jesus. They were greatly amazed. They ran to him, they greeted him. The word salute there, they, they welcomed him. And commentators generally agree that they're amazed because of the unusual physical appearance of Jesus. It may be that his, his face was glowing with the glory of God like Moses' face when he went up to Mount Sinai and came down from that encounter after receiving the law. We don't know exactly why, but they noticed and they were amazed. And Jesus directed his question to the scribes. What question ye with them? Or what are you asking them? The nine who were being questioned were not doing so well with their answers. But Jesus came. He came to, to rescue them when they needed him. Aren't you glad he showed up? Don't ever feel intimidated by those who boast in the wisdom of this world and they argue with you. They seem intelligent. They may have a lot of formal education, and with it, maybe a lot of pride. But their wisdom is no match for God's. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer? Same word as we see in verse 14, the questioning. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Don't ever be intimidated by the wisdom that this world has to argue. You have Jesus. You have his word. You can trust it. It's reliable. It's truth. And so ask God for his wisdom. Ask God for the words to say. Ask God for his grace and for strength to say the right things, the answers that people need to hear. But not only did Jesus come to the aid of his disciples, he came to the aid of a father who was in desperate need. Verses 17 and 18. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He's asked the scribes, what are you asking my disciples? What are you disputing with them about? And it's one of the multitude who answers, not a scribe. We don't know if the scribes were arguing about the fact that this man had brought his son and the disciples couldn't do anything. He was desperate. He didn't care about all the theological debates that had just been going on with the scribes. The fact that the disciples 
didn't heal the demon-possessed son probably started the questions, and they probably went something like this. Why can't you do anything? Is God with you or not? Have you ever been in a crowd of unbelievers who seem to team up on you, against you? You Christians think you have all the answers, don't you? And they do that because if they can tear down your faith, then they don't have to face their need of a savior. If they can stump you, they've proven in their minds at least that the Bible doesn't have all the answers. The scribes were silent. They may have known that they were no match for Jesus. He couldn't be trapped in a battle of words. So this father speaks up. I brought unto thee my son. Well, he wasn't there. He was in the mountain of transfiguration. And so he said, he's basically saying, you weren't here, so I asked your disciples to cast him out, the demon, but they couldn't help. Watch how he approaches Jesus to make this request in verse 17. And he, addressed Jesus, uh, he addresses him with respect. He called him master, didaskalos, master teacher, instructor, one who is expected to have the answers. Luke uses the same word, didaskalos. Matthew uses the term kurios, which is Lord, or sometimes translated master, or sir, or God. So he's approaching Jesus with respect. He also has reverence and humility in his approach. Matthew 7.14 says, he came kneeling down to him. You can only imagine the picture as his desperate father comes to the only one who may be able to help him. He told Jesus all about his problem. Matthew says that the father cried, Lord, have mercy on my son. Luke is the one who tells us that this son is the man's only child. The father said, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. Look upon my son. Robertson says the compound verb look upon is commonly uh, used in medical writers for examining a patient carefully. Look upon my son, my only son. He describes his condition. Now as we go through this story, it's important that we need to point out not, not all cases like this are demon control. There are physical, there are emotional, there are psychological, there are spiritual battles that go on in people's lives and hearts. But this one we know because of the text and because Jesus points it out that this was a demonic possession. I believe personally that there, are a lot of demonic, there is a lot of demonic activity. You can read about it in the book of Acts and in the New Testament when Jesus made his first advent to church. And I think as we come and approach the second advent that we'll see more demonic activity increase. But here he's describing his son's condition. He has a demon. Matthew says, or Mark says, he has a dumb spirit, a spirit that will not allow him to speak. Laleo is the verb that means to speak or to talk. Here it's the word alaleo, anti-speaking. Okay, so he's unable to speak words. Mark later records the words that Jesus used to rebuke the demon, thou dumb and deaf spirit. Again, deafness is not a demonic activity, but in this case, that was one of, the, one of the symptoms of his possession. So the demon kept the boy from hearing. He kept him from speaking words. Luke refers to his spirit as an unclean spirit, 
Mark uses the same Greek word, but it's translated in Mark's uh, gospel as a foul spirit. And so this is an unclean, a demonic spirit. Matthew and Luke also use the term devil, daimonion, which means either demon or a devil, not necessarily the devil. He had a history of demonic control. The combined description of all three gospel accounts helps us to know what this father told Jesus at this point in in history about his son. Let's start with Matthew. The father said to my son, uh, said, my son is a lunatic and is sore vexed. A lunatic, the English translation follows the Greek idiom precisely. Lunatic comes from lunar. Maybe someone has called you loony, okay? A craziness that was thought to increase when the full moon appeared. Now, the Greek word is built on the root word selene, which is also moon. And so in that same, they had the same idea that there was a craziness or someone who was moonstruck. For centuries, people have superstitiously thought that the gravitational pull of the moon might have an effect on human behavior and possibly cause insanity. A lot of studies have been done, but nothing has ever been conclusively proven. He's also not only described by Matthew as a lunatic by the Father, but also he is sore vexed. He has been suffering greatly because of this demonic spirit. Matthew says the demonic activity caused the boy to try to hurt himself by throwing himself into the fire or into the water. You remember our study on the maniac of Gadara, he was cutting himself with stones. We see also that self-destructive nature, which is not normal. God created us with the desire to protect our bodies, not to hurt them. So that's Matthew's account. Let's look at Luke's. Remember, he's a physician, and he, he... He starts his description of the story as if he's basically taking notes as the father's speaking. Here's what he says about what the boy's father said. A spirit takes him or takes control of him. He would suddenly cry out. Now remember, he's mute. He's unable to speak words. But there is this vocal cry. And Luke writes that down. The demon tears him. Luke uses the word in Luke 9:39 and again in verse 42 with a prefix that intensifies that tearing the word indicates having a seizure or uh, physical spasms or convulsions he says he foams at the mouth doctors today say that foaming at the mouth is caused by excess saliva that mixes with the air it can be a sign of a neurologic disorder a metal poisoning or certain infections. And also the demon causes bruising. Literally that word, not not just a black and blue mark on the arm, but a breaking into pieces or a crushing. But the demon doesn't depart from him. Apparently this tearing or rending takes place when a demon does give that final blow to the body and, and, and is cast out of a person We see that in Mark 9.24, the spirit rent him sore and came out of him. But this boy was often going through this rending, this tearing, this falling down. What does Mark say? 
He also gives us some of the ways this boy reacted under the demonic spirit's control in verse 18. We see three that we've already read. Whenever he takes him, that is, whenever the demon takes the boy, again, the, the demon controlling the direction, the steps of this young boy. He teareth him, again, that rending, convulsions and seizures. He foameth, frothing from the mouth. And then he adds two more symptoms. He gnasheth, gnasheth with his teeth. He grits or grinds his teeth and pineth away. It's an interesting word. It's used of fruit that's rotting on the vine. It's, it's withering and drying up. His, his life is being sucked out of him. And so the father comes and he tells Jesus all about his son. And then he tells of the disciples that were unable to help. Verse 18 at the end. And I spake unto thy, thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. Now here's an important thing to remember. If we back up to Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, we'll find out that Jesus had empowered these very disciples against demons. They were sent out in pairs, calling people to repent. Mark 6, 7 says, And he called unto them him, the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. And they had done just that in verse 13 of Mark 6. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil, many that were sick, and healed them. They had seen God accomplish that at their very hands. And they came back rejoicing. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But now, they're powerless to help this man's son. And like Samson, who after revealing to Delilah, that his strength had to do with his relationship, his vow to God. He rose up and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And the Bible says, and he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. And these disciples, who had relied on their past victories and seen the power of God, were not able to help this young boy. What a sad state for that to be true of the church today. The world is looking for help. They're overwhelmed with the depravity of sin. There's a great need for Christians to be filled with the Spirit and to spend much time in prayer for the lost. But a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. And a prayerless church is a powerless church. May it not be said of us, they could not. I ask your disciples, they couldn't cast him out. They couldn't help. Jesus verbalizes his disappointment in verse 19, and he answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. There's a lack of faith that had caused this inability to be able to see God work. Oh, faithless generation. He's talking generally about everyone in that generation, everyone who was there that day. But specifically, he's also talking to the disciples. They hadn't been able to heal this boy from his demon possession. And later, they'll bring that up to Jesus in, pri in private in verse 28. And then he says, how long shall I be with you? Jesus knew his earthly ministry wasn't going to be long. 
He would soon be gone in heaven. And they needed to have a strong faith that would remain even when he wasn't physically with them. How long shall I suffer you? How long do I need to put up with your lack of faith? William Lane writes that these questions express the loneliness and the anguish of the one authentic believer in a world which expresses only unbelief. Where is the faith? Where is the trust that God can do great things? We come to verses 20 through 27 and we see that Jesus heals the son. He meets the demon-possessed son in verses 20 through 22. We'll stop halfway through verse 22. And they brought him, that is, they brought the boy, unto him, Jesus. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell to the ground, or fell on the ground, and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. As soon as the boy came into the presence of Christ, the demon showed his control, his power, his strength. Demons know who God is. They know his power. Luke says in Luke 9.42, As he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. Matthew says that it was when Jesus saw him. As soon as the demon knew that he was in the presence of the one who had created him as a demon, and who knew that one day he would cast him with all the rest of the demons into a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41, the spirit tore him. He sent the boy into these convulsions again. And Jesus asked the father, how long is it, has this been happening? Jesus knew. He knew the demon that was responsible. He had, he had made that demon. He created him. He had watched him follow Satan in his rebellion against, uh, with all the other angels. But Jesus asked how long because he wanted the crowd to hear and he wanted us to know how long this had been going on in this boy's life. And he says since he was a child, he uses the word paideon, which is uh, as an infant. It's just been a long time. And this father has been grieving all these years and keeping him from hurting himself. The father relates how difficult how it's been he, to keep an eye on him so that he wouldn't destroy him. The word destroy, apolomy, it's in John 3.16, it's translated perish, that he would, wouldn't cause death to his son. Jesus gives a condition as the father comes to him with this request. Second half of verse 24. But if thou canst do anything, this is the father speaking, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. But if thou canst do anything. The disciples' failure may have increased the doubt in this father's heart and mind. He may be thinking, they couldn't, but if you can do anything. The request was made. Have compassion on us and help us. Compassion and help are very closely tied together. 
The one leads to the other. Compassion always responds to help someone in need. You can do a word study of that in the New Testament, and you'll find when Jesus had compassion, he did something. There are two attributes of God which this father bases his request upon, the love of God and the omnipotence of God. Since God is a loving God, since he cares about you, and since God is an omnipotent God, he is able to do what other people would say is impossible. If you're in need today, from the greatest need a person has to be saved from their sin so they can spend an eternity with Christ, to the smallest need that you might be facing, some daily provision that you need, know that God loves you. And he is omnipotent. He is able to meet that need. The father asked the Lord to have compassion or sympathy on, on both he and his son. Did you notice as I read, have compassion on us and help us, plural. The Edmund Hebert writes, his us instinctively identified the father with the misery of his son. And deliverance from the son would be deliverance for the father. The Lord answered the father's if with an if of his own. He gave a condition in order to test this man's faith. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Jesus wanted the father to express his faith in what Jesus could do. The man responded with a statement of his feeble faith. He cried out. As, a, as a crying indicates his need. His cry was accompanied with tears. This was a sincere cry. And he said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, an honest cry. And Jesus charged the demon to come out of the boy, verses 25 through 27. When Jesus saw that the people had come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. I'm glad he added that. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The crowds came running. They may have known that something was about to take place. They wanted to see it. They wanted to watch. And it's as if Jesus wanted to, to just heal this boy before there was a lot of publicity. Before the crowds could gather, he healed him. He rebuked the foul or the unclean spirit. He charged him with the words, Matthew and Luke mention the rebuke, but they don't record the words that Jesus used. And so we have it here. The address, thou dumb and deaf spirit. The charge was, I charge or I command thee to come out of him. Get out. And the charge continues, enter him no more. Don't come back. When Jesus cleanses a life, he does a thorough job. The result, the spirit cried. It tore him severely, came out of him. He left the boy as dead. The description before was that the boy was pining away. He was withering like a piece of fruit. Now he appears lifeless to the extent that even those who were there witnessing thought he was indeed dead. The words in verse 27 show the tender compassion associated with this awesome power of Christ. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. 
We have two more verses. And these verses answer the question of why the disciples weren't able to help. Verse 28, And when he was coming into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. The lesson was personal. Jesus waited until they were away from the crowd and in a house. The Lord's rebuke to a faithless generation may have still been ringing in their ears. The embarrassment of not being able to help this demon-possessed boy must have taken away any self-confidence that they had. The disciples were the ones who asked the question, why could not we cast him out? What happened? What's the difference? We could before. And Jesus answered their question. This kind, the difficult confrontations that we have with the enemy of God, particularly against demonic spirits, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Literally, is not able to come about by anything except prayer and fasting. Apparently these disciples hadn't prayed before they asked God for his power to help. We're like the Israelites who go from the victory at Jericho to the, to the small city of Ai and forget to pray. We know what it means to pray, but we don't hear much today about fasting. It's not a very popular thing to say you don't get to eat today. All three gospel writers mention that fasting is to be done when the bridegroom is taken from the church, from the bride. They're referring to the church age, the age that we're living in today. Now is the time to fast and pray. Fasting is associated in scripture with two things, with prayer and with mourning, grieving. A person may decide to fast for the purpose of prayer. I'm going to skip this meal and spend that time in prayer. Or it could be that they're so caught up in, in praying that they forget to eat. It's a reminder to the person fasting and an indication to God that he's serious and earnest in desiring the will of God. He's willing to skip a meal or more for the purpose of praying and mourning over some important request that he's bringing to the throne of God. We should never fast to let other people know how spiritual we are. You don't tell everybody. You don't appear to fast. It's enough that the Father knows. And maybe that's why we don't hear a lot about fasting today, because the people are doing it, are obeying that part of Scripture. That's the way it should be. But we need to be aware that our bridegroom is gone, so this is the time to fast and pray. This is the time to mourn and weep over sin. This is the time to get serious about reaching the lost, about living powerful lives for Jesus Christ. May we be willing to give up anything, including food, to accomplish what is most important. God's power is available to us through prayer and fasting. You may be facing some overwhelming enemy right now. Come and cry out to God for his help, for his mercy. You may have a weak and doubting faith 
pray as this father prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You may have seen God do great things before, and you just haven't seen it recently in your life. Jesus said this kind of victory comes through fasting and prayer. You may be here and never have trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Come and trust him today. Let's bow for prayer and then we're going to have an invitation to him. Our Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts today. Use your word. Help us to see the weakness that we have in our spiritual lives is not because you lack any power, but it's because we're prayerless. And I pray that you would motivate us to get serious about a lost and dying world around us and to, to pray and to grieve and to fast and to mourn for lost souls. Give us opportunities. Give us boldness. And may we see great things accomplished because of your power that has not diminished at all since the day that you healed this young man. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.